Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Dr. Vivian Lowe is board certified in obesity medicine and internal medicine. She graduated from the Boston University School of Medicine and trained at Newton Wellesley Hospital, where she also served as chief resident. Dr. Lowe worked at HMR and was the medical obesity specialist at the Newton Wellesley Hospital Center for Weight Loss Surgery before starting her own practice. She is a member of the Obesity Medicine Association and the Obesity Society. Her other achievements include choreography and writing. She was the recipient of the Bunting Radcliffe Fellowship in Fiction in 2006, a Guggenheim Fellow in Fiction in 2008, and shortlisted for the 2005 International IMPAC Award in Literature. Her diverse skills support her commitment to celebrating the full range of our humanity in an increasingly technological and disembodied world through art and the healing scientist. She is also host of the amazing VMLMR, <laughs> VLMD Rounds podcast. Along her pre- professional journey, she realized that much of her healthcare industry that she was trained in is in reality a sick care industry. And Dr. Lowe is striving to change the paradigm of weight loss and obesity. Dr. Vivian Lowe, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. And it's wonderful, wonderful to be here. <laughs> well, I'm really glad you had a little bobble too. There's a first take that nobody's going to hear where I really screwed things up. <laughs> I almost got through um, until we were talking about your podcast, VLMD. I really wanted to get that round, the VLMD Rounds podcast. Yeah. What Just my an, initials, yeah. What an amazing podcast that is. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I put it out there, just started in September of last year. And I didn't know whether it was helpful for people. As I told you earlier, you know, I'm just making an episode every week. So I hardly have time to look back, (laughs) take a breath and dive into the next week. But my main, you know, aim is to just have um, a wider look at metabolic health and to have more serious dives into uh, the field of metabolic health, because we we hear um, these topics discussed all the time, but sometimes it can get fuzzy. And so clarifying maybe some of the basic concepts to get everyone on the same page, I think might be helpful. It is very helpful. The episode you did about sweeteners, I know that wasn't even your favorite to do because it's so complicated. It, you made things really easy for me to understand. And I really appreciated the deep dives into these things. And the funny thing is, I say deep dive, you will finish an episode and be like, I'm so sorry this this was like very, very high level. I wish I could get into more details. This is after talking for like an hour and a half. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, this isn't enough information. Like, what are you talking about? This is amazing. It's <laughs> great stuff. Thank you. I, I think that's the challenge for me because, you know, I basically only have roughly an hour or so. Sometimes I run over and then I am not sure what people know or don't know. Trying to manage an audience that might be relatively new to some of the topics and then some people who might really you know know a whole lot more and um it's really hard to to kind of present something to a general audience and then also to a specialized audience at the same time yeah no and and for that person who maybe isn't understanding some of the more complex subjects i would suggest going to the very beginning and start from there because it does seem to be a little bit more like user-friendly in the beginning and then you get into more specific topics as you go and i really appreciate one of the things you said after one of the interviews or one of your episodes where you said like somebody asked me what we're going to talk about when i run out of topics like we're, we're never going to run out of topics so fascinating we can always find something to talk about yeah we're talking about the human body it's just every day i just feel like oh my god it's overwhelming the things that we're learning every day right 
So and as I said earlier, we, we're really making a lot of discoveries in basic science. And really now I wish we could translate a lot of those discoveries into clinical practice. I think that's where the work is. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about that with you today. Your time management skills must be of all time great as far as what you're doing in a day. You do dance, you do writing, you're writing multiple books, um, uh, podcasting, you've got your clinic like so busy, plus you're working out, you're meditating, so many things you always have going on. I don't know how you do it. It's really wonderful. It's called hustling, Casey. <laughs> Good you for just you. hustle. Good for yeah. you. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I could totally relate. Um, I want to talk about your schooling that you got in college. You had a very unique opportunity. Can you tell us about what uh, college was like for you? Yeah, so I uh, attended Boston University as an undergrad. And at the end of my freshman year, there was a special program that they offered. And it was early acceptance into med school. It wasn't the six-year programs that you hear about. But basically, if you got accepted, you were guaranteed a spot in med school. And then you could just enjoy your undergraduate years. And I think we were told, I was talking to someone who had also been in that program. I said, oh, we just had to pass the uh, MCATs, right? And he said, no, I think they just wanted us to take the MCATs. They didn't even care we passed. So I don't remember that part. I thought we had to at least pass it. But um, so anyway, I did get accepted into that program. And it was an absolute gift because it really meant that I didn't have to spend the next, you know, uh, three or three years, uh, the rest of my undergraduate years, trying to fit into, you know, the program for applying for med school, right? There's a certain, uh, you had to take a certain course load, but then also, you know, the activities that you put yourself through, um, just to make yourself look like a viable candidate. I see people doing that as they're applying to med school now and just the reality of things. And I was spared, fortunately, you know, and I could just kind of dive into the rest of my undergraduate years and enjoy it. And I decided at that point that I would pick something that I knew absolutely nothing about. So I was a, already a biology major and um, I, I just wanted something that would challenge me and be in a field that I had zero knowledge of. So I picked the classics and um, ended up in the classics department doing Latin and Greek. And I had uh, a wonderful professor who was also my advisor. And because the classics department is so small, basically I ended up having almost one-on-one -on -one tutorials with him most of the time. I mean, a big class for me was maybe five people, Wow! right? So I got to know um, my classmates very well, but I also really had one-on-one -on -one sessions with this person uh, for three years. And he really taught me how, taught me how to think. He was a person I, I credit uh, for teaching me how to think, right? So I don't know. People ask me what's the best sort of pre-med thing to do. And I will always say, you know, go do the classics. That's amazing. It seems like something that once you learn will help you through all facets of life. Yeah, because I mean, we were doing a lot of translation, obviously. And um, he was very, very, he was very attentive to the text and uh, making sure that you didn't, uh, ruminate or speculate outside the text, at least in translation, right? And then um, to look at the cultural context and the context of the time, which is something I find that sometimes is missing today, that people forget that there's a certain cultural context and there's a 
a, a time context, right, where we are in history, um, so that how we see the world today didn't apply, you know, maybe 50 years ago. So, I mean, just appreciating that we're our thinking, even uh, as a civilization, that is changing and evolving at the same time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, when you transitioned over to med school, not only did the classes get bigger, but you also started your career as a vandal. You were accused of some vandalization. Can you tell us about that experience? I love the story. Yeah, I didn't fit in. And I, you know, like you said, the classes, the big classes were rather overwhelming. But the other thing was, we were crammed into this room. And really from seven till five, I think every day it was just lecture after lecture. And it was almost sort of drilling stuff into us. And there wasn't a lot about exploring the ideas. And, and I understand that there wasn't time in the curriculum, but it just got to rote learning and memory work. And I have a very good memory. So that's fine. I could just have relied on it, but it just felt like I wasn't really applying my brain. <laughs> and, it, you know, I, I really wanted to do a deeper dive in some of these things, but we were just basically, I think the the idea was just to memorize and get through the exams, right? And so, um, and there wasn't, you know, I'd, I'd spent all this time, especially in that first semester, and I realized that for weeks and weeks and weeks, I hadn't seen anything beautiful, right? And, and then that just, you know, and then I remember running off during class and going to the Museum of Fine Arts to take the bus there. And I just spent the afternoon there just because I needed to to just be outside of that whole cram environment and, and look at beautiful things, right? And and then as I said in my first episode of the podcast, I was in the dissection lab late one day and um looked up all of a sudden and and just suddenly saw things differently because this poem came to mind and it, it just suddenly clicked in my head for me. And I was really excited because the first time I truly connected uh, with what was going on in med school. So I rushed home and I got these big plastic sheets and colored markers and I wrote out this poem. It's a very long poem, actually. And I wrote it all out and um, and then dragged it all the way to school the next morning into the dissection lab. And we had these big glass windows all around. And I basically plastered the window, right? Just kind of all the different stanzas of the poem going around. And the and just when I finished, it was a perfect moment because it was sunrise and we were, you know, pretty high up. And the 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 you know the sun was just coming in and the colors, because I'd used different colors for those markers, and this poem was dancing, you know, through the window. And you know, there were these amazing um, cadavers laid out. It was just this moment that kind of came together for me. And then I went down to class, right? And then as I, as I said in the episode, um, the security card came up and basically reported <laughs> they, they said there was a security breach and someone had vandalized you know, the, the, the anatomy lab. And um, so I turned myself in and, you know, they tried to be nice about it. But at that time, I think I was young and I, I think I was just so done with them, right? Uh, at that point, because uh, I was trying to explain what it meant 
for me and what I think um, we hadn't been seeing in all those months so far. And I don't think they got it, you know. And so I just, um, I just kind of said, right, I'm going to do something else. And actually what I did, I didn't talk about this, but I just basically um, looked at my schedule. I, I said, do I really need to be here? No, really what I need is I just need to pass all these exams. So I took out my calendar and marked the exam dates. And then back in those days, they had these special courier services. I don't know if you heard of them, you know, like DHL and so forth. These different sky pack and so forth. And what they would do is they, they would send documents, you know, let's say over to Europe or elsewhere in the world. But they needed someone to actually they put them in the in a bag, but they needed a passenger, a live passenger to check that bag in with. So if you were willing to be a courier and you paid $50, you could only carry hand luggage, but you could pretty much go anywhere in the world. So I said, and all I needed was a pa- I got passport, hand luggage, 50 bucks. Okay. Wow. And that's exactly what I did. So I remember walking into the office the first time they said, where do you want to go? And I looked up and A, Amsterdam. Yeah, that's where I'll go. <laughs> yeah, A, right? So I, I did go to Amsterdam. Um, yeah, I, and, and I would come back and make the exams, right? So I would go back and forth wow. um, doing that. And so much so that by the time I went into my clinical years, the third year, a lot of people asked me, are you, did you just transfer? And I was like, no, I've been here all along, but I just didn't go to class. (laughs) Nice. Wow. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that story. That's really meaningful. I think that's the best vandalization I've ever heard of. And that's a great way to approach that opportunity of a place that you didn't need to be. So you just leverage, you know, what you had around you and got to check out the world and pass your exams. It's absolutely amazing. So, so those first early years in clinic, bright eyed, bushy tailed, you're just out of school. What are your expectations, especially when it comes to what you were kind of specializing in weight control obesity like chronic disease what were your what were you expecting at that time so at the time i thought i was going into infectious disease you know everyone who knew me in med school um you know that i said i think i'm going to the london school of tropical medicine after this you know that's what i wanted to do oh walter reed you know something like that for infectious disease um i was at boston city hospital so um you know, we certainly saw our fair share of infectious disease. And initially, that's what I thought I wanted to do. But, um, you know, I I have to say, I really enjoyed my clinical years. It was very different from the first two years, because now you had live interaction with patients. And I was in a very quirky environment. City Hospital was just this quirky place with brilliant people, but there were oddballs like me. (laughs) And so, you know, and and the patients were just as fun. So I really enjoyed, I I really made sure I I did as many electives as possible. Most people wanted to go elsewhere for the, and I just said, I'll stay here. I like this place. And then I also did as many international electives as possible. So I spent two electives in, in Brazil, one in the Amazon region and one in the interior part of Brazil. And then I did uh, one month in Nepal, in Kathmandu. So um, having that international experience was really eye-opening to seeing, you know, the kind of healthcare that people got in other places, what was available 
very little generally, right? And and you know, I remember um, in in the in the hospital, it was in uh, Beling, the town of Beling, which is right at the mouth of the Amazon River. And in the hospital there in the morning, the clinic, right, the gates would open and you'd easily have 60 patients, no charts, and they'd walk for miles. And, and you know, you just had to figure out what was going on and try to help them. And oftentimes there was nothing you could do. Yeah. And it was similar in, in Nepal. So, you know, I was in the obstetrics department for a little while and uh, went through surgery department and medicine. but. Sometimes these women would have walked two days, you know, um, to get to the hospital and maybe their babies were still born already, you know, that kind of thing. It was very, very common. Yeah. So it really was a profound experience for me um, just to experience what other people in different parts of the world had in terms of healthcare, right? Sure. So, yeah, I think that was probably uh, the, the clinical years, especially the international electives. I really got a lot out of that. It made me think about what it meant to be a healthcare provider. And I have to say, Casey, you know, when someone's looking you in the eye and you're their last hope and you have nothing for them, um, you know, it's hard to sleep at night. Yeah, that's that. tough. Wow. No, I've, I've lived in Brazil. I, I spent two years down there and I was in the southern part of Brazil where it's a more wealthy area. And, and the yes. way that Brazilian healthcare worked back then, you either had to pay, if you were wealthy enough, you could pay for private care. And that was pretty good right. from what I remember. Or you could do the free government care, which was atrocious. You might wait like months and months with like a broken arm or something. They couldn't see you or help you or had terrible resources. The hospitals were way overcrowded, very dirty. Like it's, it's a totally different thing than what we have here. Yes. I, I I was working in the public system and most of the doctors would have their own private clinics because they had to make a living. So basically there were no doctors. There would be one or two residents. There were no nurses. So I remember in pediatrics, the mothers usually stayed and they did the IVs and so forth. I mean, it was just, it was chaotic uh, a lot of the times. So yeah. Where, where in Brazil were you? So I was down south in the state of Santa Catarina uh, in the city of Florianopolis. Oh, it is gorgeous. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, one of the, and it's, you know, the, the South is a lot more organized, I think, you know, than some parts in, uh, in the North, but yeah, you, in the uh, public hospitals, it was really heart-wrenching sometimes. Yeah. yeah, I remember seeing that. It's weird down there, too, because there were so many German um, immigrants that left Germany during the war. And so yes, were, in the were, South, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so my, my first city, I thought I stepped off the bus in the wrong continent. Like, everything was German. People would talk to us in Portuguese, but then yell at their dog in German. It was very meat and potatoes, and all that architecture was very strange. And they'd have these little chalets and yeah. things like that, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I know. Totally, so Santa different. Santa Catarina. Yeah. 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 Nice. That's great. Yeah. yeah. I, I have fond memories of that, actually. Um, in fact, if, if for anybody watching, you can see the the painting on the wall is of the bridge in Florianopolis. Oh, wow. Yeah, I got okay. that down there. I got that down there. So I'm curious. You mentioned you mentioned dealing with these people as they were in clinic. You might open the doors and there might be 60 people there. What were they presenting with? What kind of care were you providing for those people? You know, I think oftentimes it was palliative or just as much comfort, uh, human comfort you could give because it really did, we didn't have a lot. And um, people would present with infections, 
you know, and then maybe we had a few um, antibiotics that we could use. A lot of times they present with tumors, end stage, you know, or huge, you know, masses that had been growing over time and so forth. Uh, so uh, it was really, it wasn't stuff that you saw back here. So it was, um, it was quite different. And then what could you offer them, right? I mean, there weren't that many um, surgeons in the area and, you know, you couldn't get everyone in for surgery. You couldn't even get imaging, right? Wow. So that was, yeah. And there was one clinic um, that I, I was in and the uh, doctor there, he was the radiologist. He was, you know, the ER person. He was the primary care. He was, and he did surgery. And I said, so you're, are you a surgeon? He said, no, no, I trained as a radiologist. I said, oh, what? Ah, you just, you just did a C-section. And he said, oh yeah, you know what I did? I went to Sao Paulo. I spent two days and I learned how to do it. He said, because there's no one else here. And so he had to. So he says, yeah, I, I just, you know, I said, okay, can I learn how to do this? He went down to Sao Paulo, some hospital, um, and he learned how to do it. Appendectomies he's done. And, you know, he, he taught himself everything Wow. pretty much because he was it. Yeah. Right. And, and spending that not, uh, the call night calls with him. Yeah. Anything could show up and you, you were it. Wow. Right. So, you know, that was amazing. And just watching how he just dealt with it and he just kind of, and, and like I said, sometimes you have nothing to offer, but human comfort, wow. you know, that's amazing. Yeah, no, I, I just, obviously that's way less than ideal, but knowing Brazilian people, that doesn't surprise me at all, that they would go to that length and do something very risky to try to help people. I think that's, yeah, it tells me a lot about them. And that's was my experience from being down there. When, when did your, when did your focus shift then to more of the chronic disease and obesity side of things? It was really, um, so in, actually when I was in residency, I thought I wanted to go into ICU because I really enjoyed intensive care. I think it was a sense of control, right? In the ICU, you know, one nurse per patient or maybe two patients, right? And then all your orders get carried out very quickly and the labs are really quick. And, you know, so this, the sense of control, whereas, you know, when you send your patient out into the world, you don't know whether they're doing what you ask them to do or not, right? So I thought I would go into ICU medicine at first, and then I decided, no, let's just stick with general internal medicine. But very early, um, I got to work in a, an obesity um, clinic, and it was because a bariatric surgeon who knew me from my training days, he just didn't want to um, see clinic patients. He just wanted to surgerize them. So he said, and it was fine because he's, he was good at what he did. And he said, look, you're better off at this than me, right? So he offered me his clinics and I ended up seeing patients who, you know, either were preparing for surgery or had had surgery or some of them just, you know, chose to do medical weight loss, right? And um, that actually was another eye-opening experience because for the first time, I found myself taking patients off medication and I, you know, I remember the, the nurse telling me, hinting lightly to me, you might want to consider like, you know, going down on the insulin. And I just looked at her because, and I thought, 
go down. I've never heard of anyone going down, right? Remember that first week that I was there. And then I got hooked. I'm like, yeah, go down. <laughs> Everything should go down, right? <laughs> I just realized, hey, you know, yeah, because every time, you know, I saw a clinic when I was in training and, and also the, the brief two years when I was doing primary care, it was just adding more medications, increasing doses, right? And at some point, it'd be ridiculous. Somebody's on 15 meds and this one's for the side effects of that one and that one's for the side... And I'm like, are we really doing anything? So, um, you know, it got addictive taking people off medications and seeing real improvements in their health. You know, noticing that people uh, moved better, slept better, had better quality of life, right? Uh, do things that they couldn't do before. So that was when I realized, oh, this this kind of medicine is for me. But it also struck me that we had never been taught any of this in med school or in training, right? They never taught us to de-prescribe because there was there was not even that concept, right, of de-prescribing. So, uh, you know, that you're, you already know you're in a bad place when they can't even conceive of that, right? Yeah. And then um, the idea that we can optimize our health but then it made me realize that the only way we were defining health was absence of disease which is a pretty low bar right i mean health you know what's health oh when you're not sick <laughs> like oh that's pretty bad right that's a low bar and and then so when there's no agreement and no clear um idea of what health is then you know it's really hard to aim for it because it's very fuzzy yeah. How do you define health? Do you define health any differently? I do. So um, one of my favorite scientists um, is Ruslan Metchkov, and he is an immunologist at Yale. And he has talked about health as having robustness and resilience, right? Robustness in the sense that you don't easily get taken down or or or, or you don't get sick easily. Resilience, if you do get sick, that you bounce back, right, um, easily. And I would add that you have uh, options for responding to your environment, right? And I, I put that other R in, you know, uh, respon responsiveness to your environment. Because, um, you know, we are in a healthcare world that is reactive, but I think when you are in a situation of real health, that not only do you have robustness and resilience, that you are responsive to your environment. And we were built that way. Our bodies are built that way. We have, you know, some people term it metabolic flexibility, but we have this ability to respond to the environment and adapt. And um, I think a lot of times we forget how, just how amazing we're built. And how, you know, the body's made to respond to different circumstances, changes in the temperature, changes in nutrition and so forth. We have that range. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I think about our evolution and how we were able to use technologies to help us. And our bodies are, you know, relatively speaking to other animals, maybe a little weak. We don't have, you know, we, we can't run as fast as Jaguar. We don't have the same fur as or power as a bear. Like there's certain things we don't possess, but yet we, through those three R's, we're able to evolve by using our brains and by using technology and cooperating, communicating with each other. I think that's wonderful. I think that's a wonderful definition of health. I want to go back to what you were doing in the beginning with obesity, seeing success, deep what were you doing that was different than what other people were doing? Well, actually paying attention to nutrition and realizing that it has an impact on how your body functions and on your health, right, overall. And everybody would say that, you know, oh, you know, counseling, nutrition and lifestyle. But that was always kept that way. Nutrition and lifestyle counseling. That's such a fuzzy cat you know, um, category. And what exactly are we counseling? Oh, no instructions there. (laughs) What lifestyle behavior modifications are we telling them to do? Oh, we don't know either. And by the way, we're as healthcare providers among the most unhealthy, (laughs) you know, within the population as well. I think definitely in terms of mental health, because uh, I think it's 400 physicians kill themselves every year. Oh, that's so sad. Right? And that's two med school classes, right? Wow. So mental health is very poor in um, in healthcare providers. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of burnout. We've heard a lot about that, right? So uh, this makes my point because I think um, you might have heard the story, but I got to a point very early in my career where I burned out. I was two years out from my training uh, in residency and I realized I was completely burnt out. And at that point, it struck me, oh, it doesn't matter what you did in the past. You can't last, right? You've got your career ahead of you, but if you can't last that long stretch ahead, you're not going to make it. It doesn't matter that you have an MD. Who cares, right? Um, And then It struck me that, okay, I'm a doctor, I'm sitting here, I'm supposed to help people get healthy, and I don't even know what that means for myself. So that was something, you know, I just didn't feel good about because I just felt like, would you go to a dentist who had rotting teeth? Right? I mean, I I would think, well, you know what, if you can't take care of your teeth, I don't know if I'll trust you with mine. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, I remember thinking that and going, yeah, that's just, it's, it's, it's hypocritical to be talking to patients about their health if I'm not able to achieve health for myself. Yeah. Right. And that's when I actually, I quit my job at the time. Um, And it was, you know, there were serious consequences and it was a hard time for me, but I just realized, A, that I wasn't any good to patients anymore because I was so burnt out. And at that point, you might be doing more harm because, you know, when you reach the point where it's hard to care because you're so tired, um, you have to consider the harm you might be doing, right? And I just decided that, okay, at the very least, don't do any harm. And then I had to figure my way around that and and 
learn to be healthy, figure out what it means to be healthy. And how come they never taught us this? They still don't, you know, I mean, they often will say, and this is always again, oh, you know, these poor physicians are burning out. Oh, we have to counsel people about lifestyle and behavior. And it's just talk because there's no curriculum, right? I mean, we can't even agree on what health is, right? So basically it's just blah, blah, blah. And I've just gotten to the point where I kind of, you know, I, I just, I don't listen to that very much just because, you know, it's not, it's not actionable. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Right. And people make the argument that doctors need to get more of that lifestyle education, which of course they won't. They need to get more nutrition education in school. And initially I'm like, yes, I'm on board. That would be great. We need to teach them more of that stuff. But the problem is they would probably be learning all of the wrong things anyway. Teaching them might only reinforce the wrong information even further. Like it's almost, it's almost to some extent better the doctors that get to where you get, where they burn out, they have to step back from the system and they have to discover a new way that's outside of that paradigm. What do you think about that? No, I totally agree because um, that's one of the reasons, you know, when I started my practice, um, we made a decision not to hire uh, nutritionists or dietitians because I actually went through, I went through different schools of nutrition, looked at their textbooks and just, I just wanted to know what they were learning, you know, and it's not their fault because they're, they're going, they're paying money and they're bright people, but that's the curriculum that's presented to them, right? And so I went through the text, their recommended text, the, uh, you know, the books that they use for their semester. Some of, the, some of them had their course notes online and so forth. So I looked through all of them and I realized, yeah, no, you know what? You're better off hiring someone with the right attitude and training them yourself, which is what I ended up doing. And then Obviously, um, I had to learn myself, but, you know, where to start and then going back to biochemistry and really now connecting the science with the clinical aspects, right? Because it's not just passing the exam and cramming this in and memorizing how many ATPs are formed in this cycle. It's understanding how this relates to uh, what happens in your patient, Yeah. Right. And making that connection, you know, I had to go back and do myself, which is one of the reasons I started the podcast is because I wanted to share some of the things that I had learned. Um, I really had to put myself back through school again and go through the material, update myself, but also now with a clinician's point of view, look at how I can extract clinically meaningful um, information to use in my day-to-day you know, practice with my patient. Yeah, I love that. And and look, I'm not a dietitian. I'm a nutrition coach. I have a certification that I pass off. There's a giant textbook behind me that I have to know pretty well to be able to continue to be a, a nutritionist. And and really, there's there's one sentence. There's one sentence in the entire 600 pages where it says anything about the the metabolism of, of fat burning and ketones. There's one sentence. It doesn't say anything other than in this state you're burning fat and you produce ketones. And that's it. And and so, <laughs> like, give me a break. Like this. Is a huge major metabolic pathway. No, but it got one sentence. One sentence. I think that's that's I suppose progress. Oh man, I learned more from reading George Cahill studies in the sixties with fasting, where he talks about yeah. how the body keto death. You learn more about that reading a few pages than you do this textbook. And and Casey, this is the sad part, right? Because the information is not. It's not like 
it, we just discovered this in 2021. A lot of this information is from the 50s, from the 60s, right? It's old information. Why is it not in the curriculum? Because you, you can say, well, you know, newer newer science, you know, it takes a while before. It no, I'm like, no, sorry, we're 50 years behind and still not in the curriculum um, because I check all the time. I always ask, you know, I, I know some students, current students in med school, and I always ask them, send me your curriculum, you know. Okay, well, how are you, how are they teaching atherosclerosis? Send me your, your notes. So they do. And you realize, okay, yeah, we've not moved very much, really. And, uh, you know, none of this information is new. In fact, it's very old. Then you have to ask yourself why it didn't get and still doesn't get into the curriculum, because it's not promoting the paradigm nobody gets paid till you get sick and when you go to med school you know basically it's a trade right let's just be blunt it's a trade you've got to make a living from it right, right. and at this at this point in time we make a living off of sickness we really do yeah Right. So why are we promoting health? You would run out. I mean, that's the worst business model given what we're doing. Right. So um, I I definitely uh, think that the reason we don't prioritize it still not in the curriculum is because the current model for reimbursement is only for sick care. I mean, I like to joke because, you know, uh, in ancient China, right, the, the empress physicians were basically responsible for taking care of the emperor and if he got sick off with their heads because you know the thinking was the guy got sick under your care what kind of physician are you wow. right and it's a whole different motivation going on there right whole different incentives now because your job and your expertise is to keep the person well and if he got sick, you were a bad physician. That's a whole different way of thinking. Wow. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. Imagine if people, if, imagine if you you didn't get paid or you had money deducted, right, from your payments, if your patient got sick, right? Wow. <laughs> At least the mode of thinking, the way we approach the problem would be different. I'm not saying it's 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 practical maybe to do in real life because you can't control what the patient is doing and you know, a lot, some things are out of your control. But my point is that the focus now is still on, okay, when they get sick, this is what you do. Yeah. Right. And then, and then the expectation, we don't actually say this, Casey, but it's implied. The expectation is they will get worse. 100%. They will get, it's okay. Oh, now you have diabetes. Oh, well, it's just going to get worse. We'll control it. for Now you have high blood pressure, but at some point we'll probably need another medication on top of the one that you have. I just had a patient and he had, you know, just yeah, borderline, you know, chronic renal insufficiency, right? Stage three. And they're like, well, this uh, will progress for sure. And I was like, for sure. You know, I've taken people stage three, stage four, and they've just normalize their renal function, right? But the, the expectation is that, okay, all right, now you're sick. And we can dive in and you're going to get worse. Yeah. And then we'll just add stuff. 
that's the implication, even though it's not maybe verbalized. Yeah, no, that's right. And and you mentioned diabetes. I think that's probably the best example. We're measuring your blood glucose. It's in the 90s, so you're fine. You can keep doing what you're doing. Come back a decade later. Oh, it's still in the 90s. You're doing fine. Keep doing what you're doing. You, it's the rising insulin. Your insulin's going sky high. You're not looking at the insulin. You would have known 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that there was an issue. And it's only when, it's only when the glucose is now out of control and can't right. get back down. Too late. Let's yeah. give you some insulin. Great. Good idea. Right. It's right. Crazy. And you, it's very hard sometimes to talk to colleagues at, because they'll just say, oh, but the glucose is fine. Right. And you're like, well, okay. But at what expense? Right. Yeah. And there, it's really hard for people in the medical world in general um, to grasp that concept because when I talk to other physicians, because we have patients in common, so I'm, you know, giving them a courtesy call or we're consulting, and think, they'll always say, "But the glucose is fine. There isn't a problem." And I'm like, "I don't know what to say, but <laughs> I don't have three hours, <laughs> You're right?" So frustrating. So, so frustrating. Yeah. Well, I just got back from Low Carb Denver, and I'm in a room of a thousand people who mostly believe that weight gain, fat gain, obesity, diabetes, all this chronic disease is related to insulin, and in particular, lots of processed foods and carbohydrates. We had a presenter that came on stage, very well known. If you think you know who I'm talking about, you absolutely know who I'm talking about. And he got on stage and really made the case that it, all you have to do is really control for calories, whether you're eating a high amount of carbohydrates or a high amount of fat. It's possible to lose weight and lose fat on either one as long as you're controlling calories. We're talking about the mechanisms of fat loss, weight loss, dealing with obesity, and all those other chronic diseases like I mentioned. What, what do you think? What have you noticed? What, where are you on that spectrum? I think that there are, obviously, and I think you're aware of that there are hormonal implications, right, um, that uh, we tend to discount in the general medical, you know, conventional medical world. So we're just looking at a numbers game. And by the way, these numbers are not, I mean, they make it sound like it's very scientific, but they're not because we're not a closed system, right? And also the other thing is we're measuring energy in terms of calories. And I, as I said in my first episode, you know, there there are other ways to think of energy management, right? In the flow of electrons, in the flow of protons. And that's very, very important. Okay. I didn't say this in that episode, but, um, you know, we, we, we only focused on the calories and sometimes we just only focus on ATPs. But, you know, really the flow of electrons, the flow of protons, that's, that's a huge implication there. And when you look at something like cancer metabolism, the cancer cell isn't saying, well, I'll get more calories. It's, it's going, I need to build. I need to build because I'm making more cancer cells. Okay. And yeah, maybe I get a little less energy here, less ATP here, but I'll get a lot more carbons to use. I can make more nucleic acids. Okay, so it's making that kind of decision. So energy management and regulation is absolutely what metabolism is about. It's just how we think of the energy. And now we're just focused on, oh, it's X number of calories, right? That cancer cell may be saying, I don't need the calories. I need the carbons. Okay, that's a resource. That's energy for them. 
right? In a different way. So learning to think about it differently is, is important. And, you know, that's, that's why I think we need to start to have a, a serious curriculum on metabolic health. Because right now, to, to me, I think it's still a little fuzzy. And, you know, to be honest, um, there is the low-carb world and then there's a conventional world. But as human beings, we are going to run that whole spectrum under di di different circumstances. And your body is never static. And at any point in time, you're probably managing a few processes. So I think people don't realize that, for example, you know, it's not like we completely shut off insulin. If you're not a type one diabetic, you're always making some basal insulin, right? But you're also making some very, very, very small amounts of ketones, right? And it's differential. You might be making more, you know, uh, to use under certain circumstances at different points in time in the circadian rhythm, but we are not monitoring for this. So we just have a black or white no ketones. Yes, we have ketones. I'm like, no, it's always going to be the spectrum. Yeah. And there's a balance of inflammatory environments and anti-inflammatory, because again, we're used to thinking anti-inflammatory is good. No, not really, because then you would be immunosuppressed if you were 100% anti-inflammatory. We need some of the inflammatory responses. Right. And what people don't talk about, for example, with circadian rhythm is that your immune system has a, a rhythm to it. And we're more um, we're, we're more revved up in terms of the immune system at night. Right. Melatonin, for example, revs up the immune system. Okay, And people don't talk about this, uh, but we need that because that's where your tumor surveillance is coming from. Because when your immune system is slightly revved up, it's looking around, say, oh, tumor cell out, right? And shut it down. So that's, you know, we need some of that. And there's, there's a rhythm to that. So, but that, you know, it, it's a flux. And, and it's having people, my goal, like one of my goals in the podcast is to try to get people away from the polarized thinking. Yes, no, black, white. You know, because we have this nuance and this range, and that's why it's so amazing. You know, you have this flexibility and your body and different parts of your body may be doing different things, depending on the tissue, right? Uh, so so that kind of, of nuance, that kind of context, we have to take it into account. And sometimes I find when people get into these discussions, we're making it to be all or nothing. And we have to stop thinking that way. It is easier and it's tempting. But when you have a patient in front of you and you're trying to optimize and you also realize this person is going to go through different stages, right? And, you know, when a postmenopausal woman and someone who's pregnant, right, or in the preconception stage, these are all different phases. Might be the same person obviously but same genes right but you know it's a different context and your body will start adapting depending on what it needs for that context and it will shift and again it's not going to shift completely to one direction or to another it's always going to modulate and maybe have a little bit more expression of one state than the other in certain tissues that's the other thing right because i think the other part that and i'm going to be doing an episode somewhere down the line, um, 
on, for example, insulin, we assume peripheral insulin is the same as CNS insulin. It's not quite the same, right? So, you know, understanding that, and, and again, we just take insulin. We are only looking, I just had a conversation with a physician and he was on, he told me, oh, I was unaware of this. We are generally, even in the low carb, we're only talking about the glucose disposal function of insulin, right? But it has behavioral implications. It impacts feeding behavior, for example, right? It has proliferative aspects, cellular growth, differentiation. You know, there, uh, these insulin signaling pathways, There's, the, the, it, it's doing way more than what we generally talk about, right? So insulin in itself also impacts your vasculature and your nitric oxide, you know, and so forth. So when people talk about insulin, I always try to distinguish, I go, okay, we are talking specifically now about the gl glucose disposal function of insulin, right? And even if you look at, the GLUT4 tissues, right? Again, this is where, again, the black and white thinking, and they're like, oh, it's GLUT4. It's like, okay, but they, they also have GLUT1 at the same time. So if you shut down GLUT4, you still have GLUT1. And under certain conditions, right, you might be upregulating GLUT1. So you have to think about that. And sometimes your body does it on purpose, okay? Because it, it, it requires uh, that you have you know, that you prioritize the glucose for, for certain cells and so forth, right? So my, the, the, the big picture is you got to stand back. And this is something I was talking to a patient and he's a systems engineer. And he said, he, he got it immediately. He says, yeah, it's a system. You perturb one part and there's always, you can't see anything in isolation. And this is where, you know, much as I have learned so much and I love being in the low carb world, I also think that we, if you're going to develop this field of metabolic health and take it to the next level now, right? Now that we've raised consciousness and we've realized that this is important, we got to get this into the curriculum. This is how we should be treating our patients. But the next level is really having a deep understanding of what's happening in the entire system. And when I push this button, you know, all the defamations that happen downstream, right? We have to start to understand that and not just one cascade, one signaling pathway. There are numerous that will be impacted. I did the mTOR um, uh, episode and people were surprised that, you know, other not only other amino acids, but cholesterol will actually activate mTOR. Right. And so there's this, oh, you know, you take leucine. Well, actually, many amino acids, at least 10 of the uh, amino acids. And, and it's just a time. Some of them will activate mTOR within 15 minutes. Some will take longer. Maybe glutamate will, might take 60 minutes and so forth. But, you know, cholesterol itself will activate mTOR. Right. So, you know, uh, so, and I had pointed out in that episode, all right we're going to activate mTOR um, through all these different mechanisms, then we have to start to step back and look at what we're doing and how it's impacting um, the mTOR complex. Wow. Right? It, it, and not just look at one amino acid. I mean, generally people look at leucine, but we know arginine, methionine, and 
you know, plenty of other amino acids will activate. And then there's the lysosomal, which is what I explained. So we can sense, you know, you take leucine and it gets into your cell and in the cytosol, yeah, we, we sense the leucine, right? But it, when you break down proteins and it gets into the lysosome, there's a sensing, uh, uh, a sensor in the lysosome that will activate mTOR as well because you've just liberated some amino acids from breaking down some proteins in the lysosome. So that itself will activate mTOR, right? So there are so many components and we're only looking at bits and pieces. And we, we need to get to that different level now where we have uh, an in-depth study of the metabolic field so that you know we can push our healthcare towards that system, right? And in a in a bigger way. Yeah. Right? So I mean, that's just kind of you let you let me rant. So you were very kind. I I'm gonna have to listen <laughs> to that twice. That was so good. I love that. No, that's amazing. Such a great and nuanced answer. And this is why nutrition can get so frustrating. It's because there are there are so many different components. And, and then again, it's like, yeah, you're sending patients out into the world and it's like, what food do you like? What tastes good do you like? There's, it, it gets down to that level. And so it becomes so complex and complicated, but I'm, I'm so glad you're willing to go there. I didn't know that about melatonin, by the way, that's fascinating. That makes a lot of sense to me, but I didn't know that. Yeah. Melatonin will upregulate, you know, interleukin six, for example, and so forth. So you need a little bit of that, you know, rev up of the immune system. You need some tumor surveillance, especially at night, Right. And there's, uh, you know, a, a, a clock, obviously, to the immune system. And um, now in, you know, at least even in the pharmaceutical world, they are looking at chronodosing. So, you know, maybe giving the medication PM is really important because it's going to impact what's going on through the night. Right. So the sophistication now is on chronodosing because they're recognizing a huge role of the circadian system, right? But, you know, we need to take that into account too as to what's going on, you know, in terms of use of supplements, in terms of what we're doing at different times of the day. Yeah, no, I love that. That's a great point and absolutely fascinating that they're getting more and more into that. That makes a lot of sense. So recently yeah. I listened to a, a, a podcast that was more kind of mainstream, really popular, and they were addressing the problem of childhood obesity. And they were talking about, I want to say it's the American uh, Pediatrics Association that yeah. just came out not too long ago that said, um, you know, basically at age two, you can start nutrition counseling if a child is presenting as obese. At age 12, you can put them on prescription medications. What is it? The GLP, GLP-6 inhibitors? Is that right? GLP-1, yeah. GLP-1 inhibitors. Yeah. Agonist, yeah. Agonist, got it. And I knew yeah. I was going to mess that up. And by 13, you can start to do bariatric surgery. And this woman who's explaining all this was like talking about the mechanisms of obesity. There wasn't much obesity in the 60s. In the 70s and 80s, it started to increase. We did studies where we went into schools. We told them the best things that we knew how to do to, to reduce obesity. And against the controls, they performed the same. So now we believe that obesity is genetic. And you can use these interventions at younger and younger ages to reverse obesity. I listened to the episode four times. I, 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 I would finish it and I think like, I don't, did she say that? No way. And I'd go back and listen again and again. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I will just point this out when I see patients um, and they often show me pictures of their family, right? 
So if I have a patient who has obesity, so yeah, it's, it's likely you'll see that the whole family has obesity. But one very interesting thing, Casey, the dog is also obese. Now, I don't know if they share genes. Do you think the dog shares genes? I don't think about that one, right? I mean, I, I was like, oh, hmm. what does your vet say? Oh, he needs to lose weight. Must have your genes. I don't know. I mean, that's great. Just, sorry. That's a great point. I, I couldn't resist. But I see this so often, right? They have a fat cat or they have a fat dog, right? And I'm like, well, I don't think we're sharing that many genes, are we? But um, I could be wrong. I'm just a human doctor, right? So, you know, yeah, I think we're getting ridiculous now, really. I I mean, that might not be popular, but that's what I think. I, I do think it's getting ridiculous. And throwing medication... And, um, you know, going after weight, that's the other thing that gets me going there. Because, you know, what you're doing is you're just going after a number on the scale. And if we're looking at the metabolic tissues and if you're going to talk about metabolic health, you must consider the metabolically active tissue in your body, which is why I think the body composition is so important, fat, muscle, bone, right? I mentioned in one of my episodes, I think it was episode four, but this is something I keep trying to get people to understand. Look, your biggest sink for glucose is going to be muscle. Okay. You shrink the muscle mass and now there's less place for the glucose to go. And there's going to be more spillage. It's going to spill and your fat cells are going to try and mop it up. Okay. But ultimately it's going to spill into the bloodstream. You could be eating the same thing, not change your diet. Okay, this is the part people don't understand. You lose five pounds of muscle, you gain five pounds of fat, you are weight neutral, and that doctor that you see is going to say, oh, you did a great job, Mrs. Jones. No, you didn't because you just lost five pounds of muscle. And where is that glucose going to go? It's going to go to fat, and it's going to spill out into the bloodstream. And Mrs. Jones is not going to change her diet. She's just going to eat the same thing. But year after year, she's going to notice that, you know, strangely, her fasting levels of glucose are creeping up. And one day she's diabetic. So I have this a lot from people who are healthy, right? And their normal weight, normal BMI. But, you know, actually they have normal weight obesity. And because they have a smaller muscle mass now, then when they were younger, it's less able to absorb the glucose, right? So for the same amount that you're eating, you're less likely, you're less able to handle that amount. And so it's going to spill. So looking at metabolically active tissue is really vital if you're going to talk about metabolic health, because it's not meaningful if you're just going after a weight, Right. So now we have all these people lose weight. And I see this. And in that same episode, I cited a study, um, you know, from looking at bariatric patients. How much muscle are you losing? Okay. Because, you know, everybody talks about and they lose, you know, X percent of their body weight. And I'm like, wait, okay, tell me how much muscle they lost. That's what I want to know. Because metabolically, it's going to catch up with them at some point. Right. So now we have kids starting off very early. You put them through surgery or you put them on medications that basically, you know, eliminate their ap- appetite. OK, so and I have had patients whose 
other doctors put them on some of these medications, right? So they're not eating and they come to me and we dex them. We, I follow my patients by DEXA. And so you can watch that muscle mass shrink. You know, the older you are, the more anabolic resistance you have. It's not so easy to hang on to muscle when, you know, you get to your 40s, let's say, right? You're 20, okay, you can get away with a lot. But, you know, if throughout your growth spurt, you're not getting enough protein, that will impact you too, okay? And a lot of bariatric patients and a lot of people on those medications, I know, I see them firsthand, they're not getting the proteins they need. They're just not. If they're making only one meal and then, you know, they feel too full, right? So A, that's not helpful. And B, we're also not getting to the root cause. You know, a lot people don't recognize that, you know, there's physiologic hunger and then there are other types of hunger, emotional hunger, for example, right? And so we're just assuming this is purely physiologic, right? And, you know, we know that uh, patients who've undergone bariatric surgery, their risk of depression goes up, risk of suicide goes up. Risk of alcohol addiction goes up. Why? Because that food was doing something. It was soothing them in some way. It was it was filling a kind of hunger. Okay. And sometimes my patients, you know, when I've started them on, they'll go, you know, I just I didn't feel good, uh, and I'm like, yeah, well, I took away your your medication because you know when you were stressed. That's what you used to do. And they're like, oh, oh my God, you're right. And I'm like, yeah, I just took that away. So of course you don't feel it. Now we have to find other ways to feel good, right? That's the harder path. But, you know, we're not going to talk about that because that's more work, right? And, and that, that means dealing with the person as a person, as a human being, you know, and not dealing with a number on the scale. Because right now we can congratulate ourselves over the numbers on the scale. Okay? But if this person now has been hospitalized twice for depression, has a suicide attempt, now is addicted to alcohol, I don't know. Did we do anything? We probably made it worse. Right? So those are the issues that are not discussed. Plus, you know, again, how this impacts development if we're talking about pediatrics. Right? And I'll tell you, I mean, I have patients who have had surgery, and they'll tell you, oh, you find a way around it. They're the first to tell you. You know, they find a way, they find the tricks around dumping. They find tricks, you know, to get in what they want to get in. I've heard that, right? actually. It's a very common. I see these patients my day-to-day, right? And so it's, it's you know, I don't know, when you're frontline and you're looking that person in the face and you're not staring at a computer screen, you actually, that's a person in front of you and they have, you know, real lives and real problems. You realize, you know what, you, you're not going to solve the issue like that. Wow. But we like the quick fix and we like the number on the scale. And you just go for that number on the scale. You, we already have sarcopenia and actually most of my patients have most patients have osteosarcopenic obesity fat muscle bone you cannot talk about metabolic health without talking about fat muscle bone and when you look they have osteosarcopenic obesity now 
fat, muscle, and bone, we think of them as different tissues, but there's a lot of inter-tissue crosstalk. And, you know, uh, hormonal signaling, paracrine and autocrine signaling. So when we say hormonal, it goes into the blood and things like that. But paracrine and autocrine, meaning that locally, right? So bone, for example, is signaling to muscle that's attached to it. And that's local, doesn't necessarily have to go into the bloodstream, right? So there's a lot of crosstalk between these different tissues. And you'll see that if you shift one, if you shift the percent body fat, you're going to shift the bone, you're going to shift the muscle, right? And we have to now manage this composition and find the optimal composition for the patient. Right, but is it, that's again, you know, it's very simplistic number on the scale, BMI and done. Right. But if you start to talk about and then fat, you know, I know you wanted to ask me about fat and I, you know, yes, there are different compartments of fat. There's, you know, the subcutaneous, there's the visceral fat. Sure. What I didn't say in that episode is I said it, but I hinted at it is like the subcutaneous fat on your hips may be different from the subcutaneous fat on your back. So even white subcutaneous fat, right, depending on location may be different, right? So there's that level of complexity. Then you have the different, you know, beige and brown and, and white and, and pink, right? Which because uh, breast tissue also very, very uh, plastic, the fat tissue there, right? Because we've always assumed that, you know, fat cells, you know, eventually they die, they become fibrotic and so forth. But, you know, at least definitely in breast tissue, fibroblasts now revert back to fat cells, right? And there's this range that they can accomplish, okay? So there's that. Then we even talk about bone marrow fat. Very, very interesting because it affects beijing, it affects brown fat, Right. And brown fat impacts bone density. There's all this is also not new. Right. The bone marrow fat, I think, is is really fascinating. And this is this weird vascular niche. Yes, it's in the bone, but it's in its own niche in some ways. You know, so there's that component of fat. Right. Then, you know, the uh, what the fats do, what they can secrete, the hormonal aspects, um, the cytokines that they can secrete. You know, everybody talks about leptin. Leptin is actually um, a cytokine. I never hear that mentioned, right? No, never. It's in the cytokine. Yeah, it's very, you know, similar to interleukin-6. So it's a very inflammatory. Okay. Cannot talk about leptin without its inflammatory aspects and its relation to the sympathetic nervous system. Do we ever talk about it? No. Right. And that's, I mean, it's fat. I mean, you go into muscle, you go into bone, right? And so that's the basic of metabolic health, fat, muscle, bone. And then you want to talk about disease conditions like atherosclerosis and Alzheimer's. And that is a different level too. But at least the basic, we have to start somewhere. And for me, the basics would be fat, muscle, bone, knowing that axis really knowing intricately how it's impacting the other components in the axis, right? And of course, it all talks to the brain, right? Fat, muscle, bone, they're, they're constantly signaling. Fat, for example, 
lot of energy regulation is through fat signaling to the brain and then having, you know, downstream effects, right? So, um, yeah, I think that we are, you know, I, I, I think what we need to do now, Casey, at this stage is really develop this metabolic health world. You know, it's got off to a good start and we're starting to get some traction, get people at least involved, interested. And like you, you were at Low Carb Denver, so there's a following now. And people understand this. And, you know, now we can, so we got to the threshold. Now we can peer through the doorway and see the world that's before us. And that's a different, a different way to look at the body. That's, to me, how we should, going into the century, deeper into the century, that's how we should um, be, be looking at the human body and looking at a medical treatment through the lens, through that doorway of metabolic health. That's the new path of discovery for us, right? And when people talk about changing the system, changing the paradigms, you know, you ask me why I started my own practice. You can't develop, you can't build something new from within something broken. You, a, a broken system usually doesn't allow something new and fresh to come out of it without squashing it, right? So I felt I had to, I had to step out of that. And my mentality when I stepped out of that was to say, let's start from scratch. If, if I'm going to step out of the system, why? let's just start from scratch and say, if now I had to build a medical system, you know, what lens would I look at my patients through? What would that curriculum look like? How should we approach the patient? I know I learned all that stuff in medical school, so I know what that looks like, right? But now if I step outside of that and you say you want to build something new, then what's new about it, right? And this is how I think, so, you know, I, I was very naive, um, but I'm still keeping my fingers crossed. I was hoping to build a parallel universe to the current medical system, right? And then basically let patients decide which they prefer, you know, because we only have one option right now. So let me build a parallel universe to the current, you know, industrial complex that exists. So that was the dream, right? And the I needed that knowledge base. And so I had to put myself through that learning process from scratch. And, you know, I, I'm not ashamed to admit I had to start from scratch. I didn't learn it in med school, you know? So it, it was very humbling. And it was just from saying, I don't know. And I need to learn if I'm really going to help someone. So putting myself through that, trying to read, trying to understand, looking at the patient and thinking a zillion times and not only thinking from one aspect, right? So thinking through all aspects. So, you know, okay, you take something like intermittent fasting, okay? It has benefits, but it has some cons because as my patient is aging and has anabolic resistance and either has sarcopenia already or is at high risk for sarcopenia. Now, how am I going to get the protein in, in the time that I have, right? Knowing that we need to bolus, right? 
to get a certain response in muscle protein synthesis, we have to bolus the protein. You can't like straggle the protein in through the day, right? So how do you do that and, and you know, make that work in the context of intermittent fasting? So that's a that's a real life yes because you sit down and crunch the numbers because that's what I did I crunch 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 mm, you know I was like okay I'm not smart enough I asked Driss who's who's you know my operations manager and, and Driss has a, a PhD in uh, theoretical mathematics I said Driss can you make this he's like no <laughs> right? so so I'm like okay the smartest guy here couldn't make it work right. So, you know, people go, what do you think about intimate? I said, look, it's useful in certain contexts and I will use it in certain patients. But long-term, that's, that's not a strategy I usually prescribe long-term. And then people, you know, I, I know lots of people and including friends and so forth, they tried intermittent fasting and they have lost weight, right? But the general story is they'll stagnate. They'll, they'll have a nice, you know, drop. And then they stay, right? And then they start to struggle, especially if they're middle age. And if you're a middle age woman and you're looking at menopause, yeah, your body composition is going to change pretty quickly. And you will accumulate more fat, even if you stay the same weight, but you're losing muscle at the same time. Now, you know, I have to look at that context and say, for this person, this might not be applicable. And that's where the nuance now starts to come in. But that's also where I think, you know, we can start to optimize a patient's care. We always talk about individualizing, but everybody gets the same thing. No, you know, you have to look at the context and understand and look at it from, you know, a, a system's point of view and say, yes, you know, and you're not going to get 100%, but you're going to pick for this patient in this situation, in this part of the lifespan, this is how we're going to optimize. And it's going to shift because we're not static. You see, I think we need to stop again, this polarized thinking and this static as if it's the universe, we're still, but we are constantly shifting. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. Again, it's, you let me rant. So <laughs> it's so good. There's no chance I'm gonna stop you for all that. It's so it's so good. This would be the point of the show where I would put you on the spot and ask you to come back to continue this conversation. And we goofed up. I sent you two calendar links that were like yeah. a few days back to back. And I was like, Hey, uh, which one do you want to do? We could do one of these or the other. And you're like, Why don't we keep both? And I mean, that's a great idea. That is a great idea. Hey, let's do it. This is amazing. The content you've given us today is so good. It's so much think about yet we're barely 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 scratching the surface now i understand why you say that after the end of an episode of your podcast that goes an hour and a half like well we just barely scratch the surface it makes a lot of sense yeah. yeah there's so much there's so much i mean like i did the lipoprotein one and again you know that's the other thing yeah we we have to watch ourselves and have some intellectual integrity here here's what i mean by that right we laugh at the people who now like maybe are going um, okay, you have to lower the cholesterol on everyone and, and they use the regular cholesterol panel. And maybe some of us are more sophisticated and we're going after the, you know, advanced lipid panels with the subfractionations and so forth, right? But I go up to people and I go, well, what do you look for in the subfract? And they say, well, you know, the small dense LDLs are bad. I'm like, okay, they're bad. Like, why? Well, we see that, you know, those are the people who have the highest risk. Okay, yeah, but where did they come from? What makes them different from the not small dense LDLs, right? And there's no response. 
Right. So then if that's the case, and I was in that category, I was like, oh, that's bad. And I said, like, oh, but why? I had to ask myself, right? So then you were in the same position of taking a dogma that, and then just blurting it out without at least knowing why we're saying this, right? So I always watch myself because I think, you know, it's easy to look at someone and say, ah, they're using that old paradigm, you know, they're still bloodletting, they're still focused on cholesterol, right? But then I have to watch my thinking and say, am I doing the same thing? Because now we have a whole group of people who are running around and it's like small dense LDLs are bad. And when I asked them, I said, yeah, why are they bad? Right? And it's hard for people to answer. So th this is where, you know, this is an opportunity. It's not saying, I'm just saying this is, if we notice this in ourselves, this is an opportunity for learning so that we can advance our field of metabolic health for all of us, right? And, you know, I do talk about that in the lipoprotein episode, but but that was only the, the lipid transport part of lipoproteins. As I said in that episode, there's a whole nother world to lipoproteins that I want to share. And it's kind of mind boggling too. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, if we actually look at our bodies, it's amazing. And that's why I think I brought back that Walt Whitman poem that I started my med school with is because now, I mean, I feel like, you know, in the end that uh, I had chosen the right poem and the right outlook for it, you know, and that, that Whitman poem, uh, which basically talks about how amazing our bodies are. And it, it's, it's just, you know, this vibrant poem about, about the body and that line of, I sing the body electric. And, you know, if we understand that the, that the energy is in the electrons and the protons and the carriers of those, uh, of those particles, I mean, I mean, he was way ahead of his time. <laughs> so beautiful. Wow. I absolutely love this. This has been so much fun. We are going to turn around and do this again next week. I'm so excited to have follow-up questions. Let's go a little deeper into this stuff. But for today, this has been incredible. Such a great discussion. I love how nuanced you are and how um, we really need to individualize care for people. And the industrial system, like you said, just is not cutting it as far as that goes. Dr. Vivian Lowe, thank you so very much for taking time out of your day to do this. I know you're very busy. Where is the best place for people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? So my website is vivianloemd.com, V-Y-V-Y-A-N-E-L-O-H-M-D.com. And um, of course, my podcast is called VLMD Rounds. That's two words, but it's mostly my initials, VLMD. And that's why I named it, because I used to sign my charts that way, VLMD. There you go. Oh, yeah. VLMD Rounds. Awesome. I yeah. Will... And thank you for letting me rant. Casey. Oh, it was so good. I just, I've learned so much. This is definitely one that I'm going to have to go back and listen to again. I know I'm going to have tons more questions for you for next time. It, it, it's just, it's wonderful content. It's just like your podcast that you put out there. You, you bring a high level of education, which is awesome. And the mechanisms and all the science and everything. But it's like you said, there is a marriage between the science and behind the practice and, and with the practicality as well. And we need both. We need to help people because people are very, very, very sick. They need this information, but they need it in a way that can actually improve their lives. And that's what you've done. You quit what you were doing to be able to do it. And I just have so much respect for you. And I really appreciate the time you took to be on our show today. So thank you so very much, Dr. Lowe. It was a real honor. It was so much fun, Casey. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. 
At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our clients get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up, and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. Also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes, which we post on the day of recording. So you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release, which can sometimes be several weeks, actually. And on Patreon, you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This was my special project this year, I really wanted to combine all of the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic. I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each. One is all about the macronutrients, and the second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests in a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in, something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.